from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Folklife Today podcast. I'm John Fenn, the head of research and programs at the American Folklife Center of the Library of Congress, and I'm here with Steve Winnick, a folklife specialist at the center and the creator of the Folklife Today blog. Thank you, John. And I will note that I did not interrupt you this year to shout Happy Halloween, but it is October and both our blog and our podcast did debut on Halloween, so we celebrate those anniversaries. This year, though, we've added the somewhat more serious and contemplative holiday of Dia de los Muertos to our blog and podcast content, and we're focusing on the Latin American story of La Llorona, the spirit of a woman who can be heard at night weeping for her children. Yes, La Llorona has been called Mexico's best-known legend, and there are also versions all over Latin America. So, Steve, for the blog, you've been doing some research on the story. Uh, What are your favorite things that you've discovered? Well, the first was new to me, but well-known to scholars, and that is that what appears to be the first reference to a spirit answering the description of La Llorona is in a 16th century manuscript describing experiences of Aztecs 10 years before the coming of the Spanish to Mexico. Wow. Um, Tell me more about this manuscript. Well, it's called the General History of the Things of New Spain, but more commonly, it's called the Florentine Codex. And it was drafted in the 1550s and finished in the 1570s by a Spanish priest named Bernardino de Sahagún. And as a folklorist, the most interesting thing to me was that Sahagún lived for years in Mexico, where he learned Nahuatl, the Aztec language, and extensively interviewed several Nahuatl speakers. So the book is in parallel text in Nahuatl and Spanish, and it covers history, mythology, ritual, belief, all kinds of topics of interest to ethnographers. And it says that 10 years before the Spanish arrived, a woman's spirit was heard weeping and wailing in the night, crying, my children, where can I take you? So I say more about this woman and who the Aztecs thought she was in the blog, where I also link to the manuscript, which is digitized and online via the World Digital Library. But many scholars think this is part of a more widespread belief in weeping woman spirits among indigenous peoples in North and Central America, and that this part of the La Llorona story is therefore indigenous, although she isn't called La Llorona in the indigenous versions. Wow, this is an amazing and and deeper history than I knew, for sure. Um, Did you find out anything else? Well, Lots of things, but I'll just mention one more. Um, About 50 years ago, scholars noticed that in addition to these indigenous elements, some La Llorona stories have European antecedents, so there are motifs to the story that seem to be European. But the weird thing was they couldn't locate any versions of this family of stories from Spain, only places like Germany and Britain. And it was considered an anomaly because the spread of the stories in Latin America was so great that it wasn't all that plausible that it came there with German immigrants to Mexico, for example. So the scholars of that era expressed a lot of puzzlement at the absence of Spanish versions. Interesting. Um, And I take it that you found something relevant to this puzzle. I did. I found a story about La Llorona as the ghost of a weeping woman in a Spanish publication from 1866, showing the story was certainly known in Spain, and the character was even called La Llorona there. 
I have to say I lucked out. It's one of those examples where the constant addition of more and more books to what is available in regular internet searches makes it possible to find evidence now that you couldn't have found even two years ago. Well, that's exciting for our listeners and researchers. Uh, so people can find links to that story as well as the Florentine Codex and other primary sources over at the blog at blogs.loc.gov folklife. Exactly. And I do feel like my main function in the blogs is to turn up interesting primary sources and make them accessible to people interested in the story, and then also to point out important interpretive work on the legend. But as an Anglophone white guy, I'm not interpreting it much myself. For the most part, I'm pointing the way to Latinx voices on the legend. Indeed, uh, that's a wise approach. And for that very reason, we have invited several guests to talk with us about La Llorona. We're starting with Alina Magoni, who is an AFC reference um, team's Latinx subject specialist, and Camilo Costa, our recent intern, who was just a guest on our last episode, too. Hello, Alina, and hello, Camille. Hi. Hello. Hello, everyone. Hi. Hi, guys. Yeah, you've both been guests on the podcast before, so welcome back to Folk Life Today. Um, and in the interest of full disclosure, I'll say that Camille did her master's thesis at Western Kentucky University on La Llorona. So let's start with Camille. Could you tell us or summarize what you called the kernel story, the version of the La Llorona tale that you remember from your youth? Yes, absolutely. Um, so with my best memory, I feel like the story went, you know, a long, long time ago in Mexico, there was the most beautiful woman in the world, and her name was Maria. And no man could ever win her hand or win her heart. She was just far too beautiful um, for anybody to compare to. Until one day, a man came riding in on his horse into the village. And Maria felt like she had to have him. He was so mysterious and so handsome and so beautiful that she needed to be with him. Long story short, they, they got married and they had two wonderful children. And in the story I heard, they were both boys. One day, however, this wonderful, amazing man um, rode to Maria's house and told her he was leaving her for another woman and leaving the family completely and left them. That night, in a fit of you know rage and jealousy and anger and heartbreak, um, Maria took her two children in the middle of the night to the river, and she drowned them. And when she realized what she had done, she then drowned herself. So then, you know, the La Llorona legend goes that Maria became a ghost that night. Um, named La Llorona, or the Weeping Woman. And what she does is she trails, you know, the rivers or any any areas with water in the southwest in Mexico um, to, to find her missing children. And if you are a child and you happen to be there past your bedtime, it's possible that she may snatch you up and think that you are one of her own. Um, so yeah, that is that is kind of the, the legend that I grew up hearing. Wow, that's a powerful and traumatic story. Um, so you heard it growing up as a child, and then years later as a graduate student, you interviewed other children about it. Uh, what did you learn from talking to kids, Camille? Yes. So this was probably my favorite interview experience. Um, I had interviewed kiddos from Santa Ana, California. They were former students of mine. And again, because of the pandemic, um, we were all in a big, huge Zoom interview. There was about five or six of us. And it was really exciting talking to kids about La Llorona because it was spooky. It was scary. I mean, this legend is still so fresh in their minds. Like they probably heard it for the first time a couple of days ago. And so th this apparition, this woman is 
is so exciting and new to them and so scary. And so whenever they would tell their version variant of the, of the narrative, um, it got more and more scary. It got more and more exciting. But I think the most fascinating uh, tidbit that I learned from these kids was how much emotionality um, they added to the narrative of La Llorona. A lot of interesting research it felt like they, they had done on her, even though they hadn't. Um, they were just thinking about her in so many different ways that I never thought to think about her at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. Um, and one interesting thing that I remember, um, we were talking about La Llorona. We were talking about uh, little motifs about the story. We were talking about, is she, you know, allowed to come into people's houses? Is she not allowed to come into people's houses? What have you heard? You know, things like that, picking each other's brains. And one student said, I have a theory, Miss Camille. Um, I feel like she's not allowed to enter families' homes because it breaks her heart and it reminds her of the family that she could never have. And I was like, whoa, oh my gosh, I never, I never would have thought of that, especially at 12 years old. Um, and I just thought it was beautiful. I thought it was, I, it was fascinating. And I think it really says something about the up and coming generation to see a spirit, to see um, what people deem a monster as something human, as something that we can all share. So I mm -hmm. thought that was really cool. Yeah, the, your chapter on kids really was fascinating. And it is true that in a lot of La Llorona stories, she's outside the door she's outside the window you can <laughs> hear her there uh and you you know you might even find that she tried to get in but she yeah. typically doesn't get in so that's an interesting connection that the kids made on that yeah. um another highlight from your thesis to me was your conversation with your mom about the story mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that Definitely. So obviously this idea of being a mother or being a failed mother is really huge in, in the narrative of La Llorona. And for my mom, um, the scariest part of the whole story wasn't necessarily a scary ghost or someone haunting around, you know, the river haunting around your home. The scariest part of the narrative for my mom was hurting your own children. Um, you know, when I was talking to my mom, I, I asked her what scared her most as a kid. And, you know, she would say all the typical things, you know, I, I didn't want to get stolen. <laughs> but she said once she became a mother, the narrative changed for her. And one of the most damned things or one of the most terrible things a, a, a woman or a mother could do was be a bad mother. Um, and it was such an emotional, complicated conversation, right? Because I think there is a lot of toxic machismo. Uh, there's Marianismo. A lot of a lot of difficult things that Mexican women have to have to grow up with um, in terms of trying to be the best mom, the best woman. Um, and so there's a lot of trauma there. You know what I mean? There's a lot of of, of difficulty in, in trying to be the yeah. best. So I, I, it was very interesting to me to hear that from my own mom, um, to hear that a, a story, a, a ghost story could bring that fear out of her. So that was probably the most fascinating thing there. Oh, yeah. Very, very moving. Yeah. Um, you also interviewed your brother and your dad um, mm -hmm. and note that everyone has a kind of different memory of the story. Yeah. What do you think this tells you about how the story operates within communities? So... I think that this story serves as a tool of communication. Um, it's so much more than at face value, a ghost story. And an amazing ghost story at that, right? A ghost story is wonderful. I, I love a ghost story. But it also doubles as a, as a way for us to talk about the things that we fear most, 
that may not be as easily digestible or easily talked about um, among families, among communities, right? So like for my brother, he, he, you know, grew up in that toxic machismo world and he always feared being someone that was hurtful because he was a man, right? My dad had actually viewed La Llorona as a version of escape, like, oh my gosh, she could be a way out of a really difficult um, home life, of a really difficult life in Mexico where my dad grew up. Um, and I think that's really exciting. I think it's really exciting that we can start these conversations with a metaphor, with a ghost story. You know what I mean? Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's very fascinating. I love learning what everybody um, uh, believes La Llorona is for them, the, the parts of the story that stuck to them the most, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a huge reflection of them and, and the power that they have to overcome their fears. Yeah, and you... you put two of those interpretations into the title of your thesis. So you called mm -hmm. the thesis, the, the, the second part of the title is a story of survival and a reclamation of the monster. Yeah. So what did you mean by those two phrases? Yeah, I, I think there are so many meanings to that idea of reclaiming uh, the title of the monster. For one, you know, on a more specific level, like I had mentioned, I think it's reclaiming this fear um, you know, uh, this generational trauma, this this scary thing um, many kids grew up with um, and, and kind of showing how you can defeat the monster, how you can, uh, you know, through co communication, through connection, through family, through love, through listening to each other. Um, and, and that can all stem from a story. And I think at the same time, you know, unfortunately, um, there is a lot of racism towards Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, um, you know, and in terms of immigration or, or what have you. And I think it's kind of beautiful that as a culture, as a community, you know, we say we reclaim this idea of the monster and say, hell, yeah, like I am the monster in the sense of I am this powerful, scary, beautiful, amazing being. And monster doesn't necessarily have to mean a bad thing. It doesn't necessarily have to mean this terrifying thing. It means something that's beautiful and powerful and willing to to break all all of these cultural walls and borders that, that maybe the Western world has built. Maybe we have built ourselves. Um, and it's reclaiming that as a tool of, of, of brilliance, of, of a way to survive, of a way to become closer and, and, and of a way to communicate. So I think there's a lot of little hidden gems of meaning in, in that. And I think it's powerful. I, I really do. All right. Well, that is fascinating. And, and as you say, powerful, Camille. Um, we want to bring Alina in as well. Alina, when did you first hear about La Llorona? Well, I actually heard about La Llorona later on in life. Um, as a child, I was afraid of my own shadow. So I think my family knew not to bring uh, legends of Kukui and La Llorona to try to make me stay home. I, uh, I think that would have traumatized me further. But I am from San Diego and part of my middle school, high school education, I had mandated Spanish language classes. And in these classes, we discussed our home lives and we also discussed our traditions and La Llorona came up probably in sixth grade for me. And I had heard of this legend, but it wasn't until having a more uh, sanitized version of the loss of her children, maybe not because she killed or murdered her own children, but just that they had drowned in the river and she was destined to wander the earth to find the souls of her children. And I realized how many of my 
fellow classmates knew this story and how it resonated and we all told different interpretations and so i heard some more mor morbid uh, versions but it wasn't until i was an undergraduate in graduate school that i really started to learn more about la llorona as part of a mexican and chicano um, nationalism or uh, interpretation of our heritage and our culture and modern reimaginings of what La Llorona could mean in our culture. Is there a version of the story that sticks with you that you've heard you know, any time from, from, you know, middle school on um, that you could share with us? I think the most um, interesting version is that La Llorona was actually an indigenous woman and who was left by a Spanish conquistador. And so it predates this more modern retelling of a scorned woman who was cheated on. Um, and it seems more of a creation myth uh, back to our cultural heritage versus a woman who just couldn't control herself as a failed mother. Earlier, John and I were talking about the indigenous roots of the La Llorona legend in Mexico. And what you're saying ties directly into that, because one thing I noticed was that when Mamzelle Ruiz sang about La Llorona in the Homegrown Concert Series this year, she said that La Llorona was also La Malinche. Uh, they're the same woman. So could you fill in that story for us? Who was La Malinche? So La Malinche, to very briefly summarize, was an indigenous woman who was enslaved and captured by Hernan Cortez and his fellow conquistador. And she was used as an interpreter and translator for his eventual conquest of the Aztec Empire. And she was also his concubine. And so there are different interpretations of her role in the fall of the Aztec Empire. She is known as the traitor, a traitor to her race and her people. Um, her translations directly led to the fall of Tenochtitlan. Um, other modern interpretations see her as a more nuanced figure. She was again, captured and enslaved, and this may have been against her will um, to bring the, the downfall of an, an entire empire. She is also known as the mother to the mestizo, the first mestizo or mestizaje in La Braza, um, meaning that her as an indigenous mother paired with Cortez as a Spanish father created the first of what is now known as the Mexican identity. Of course, that is not nuanced at all, it is very much a black and white understanding of what mestizaje and the Mexican uh, identity is, because we do know now that there is a diversity of cultures that create the Mexican identity um, and Chicano identities. Um, but that, to briefly summarize, is who she is in the role of La Braza. So you've kind of touched on this next question a little bit, Alina, but what else can we take away from the notion that La Llorona and La Malinche are equated by a lot of Mexican, Mexican-Americans, people of Mexican descent today? La Malinche and La Llorona can be tied in the sense that they both have this tainted motherhood, this sense of failed motherhood, a traitor to herself, her people, her children. Um, and so it's interesting to tie those two together because the nuance would be, is she a victim of the wrath of a man who left her? Is she the victim of colonization? Is she also an empowered and nuanced figure with agency to make her own decisions? And so La Llorona is this doomed mother destined to walk and wander the earth. And La Malinche is a traitor to her people 
known forever as both the mother who birthed our our culture and also the traitor to an entire empire. So mm -hmm. it's interesting to see this grief, this forever damnation that they both are held to. Um, and and it is, it's sad. Uh, there is a dichotomy in uh, Mexican-American, Mexican culture, Chicano or Chicanx culture of the La Virgen de Guadalupe, the pious mother, the La Llorona, the failed mother, and La Malinche, the whore, the damned mother. And it's interesting that La Llorona is actually a combination of the virgin and the traitor, La Malinche. She is destined to walk the earth forever, hoping to find her children. In the end, she was a um, pious mother to some extent, where La Malinche is known as the damned and the traitor. And La Llorona obviously was a traitor to her own children. So it's there's a lot of nuance there. There's a lot of theorizing, especially feminist uh, uh, activism and feminist art around this dichotomy that I feel is really interesting to delve into. Mm. Amazing. So, you know, the story of La Llorona is really popular. You find it in movies and songs and novels, all kinds of cultural productions. Actually, I've read three different books by Rodolfo Anaya now, and they all have different versions of the story. One of them, the sort of one that you heard as a kid, sanitized so she doesn't actually kill her children. And then other versions, you know, one in which she's La Malinche. Uh, so it's it's really interesting that even one person can interpret it several different ways and come up with different stories. So, so why do you think this story continues to speak to people so strongly even today? Well, I think it serves so many purposes. One, for children, it keeps them safe. It keeps them indoors. It keeps them away from rivers and streams where they could drown. Right. Um, but it also is just a very kind of seductive story as well. Um, if you want to refer to, let's say, in Coco, the, uh, the song is actually used, the traditional folk song La Llorona is used in the Disney movie Coco. And it seems almost romantic. It seems like a longing for a woman and not necessarily about, you know, a mother who killed her, her infants. Huh. Um, and so it touches kind of on womanhood and motherhood. It touches on loss and grief. And also it speaks to our understanding of culture. Again, um, she's a story that's been told generations upon generations. And so there's almost a nostalgia when you tell the story of the boogeyman of La Llorona to your own children. Um, and as an adult, you can interpret it in a different way. As Camille said, it's very powerful to parents who are afraid of hurting their own children or um, being a failed parent. And so it just touches on kind of all cycles of our life. Yeah, so let's bring Camille back in. Um, Camille, different form of the question. How do you think this very old story of La Llorona continues to connect with people and make meaning um, in today's world? Yeah, well, as Alina had brilliantly mentioned, you know, there is a lot of nuance to her today. She's reimagined into this almost human-like experience. You know, she is human. She was a human at some point. And I think she is such a reflection of us, I think a lot of us see ourselves in her um, in, in a scary way, but also in kind of a 
a relieving way, a hopeful way. Um, like for example, I, I use La Llorona now as as a tool of talking about mental health and talking about, you know, how how hard it is for for Chicana, for Mexican American, for Mexican women and Mexican individuals in general to talk about their brains and talk about how hard life can be. And I think she's a really, really awesome uh, gateway to talk about that kind of stuff, right? Um, Alina had also mentioned talking about, you know, like immigration and how she safely guides children, you know, uh, across the border, across the river. I, I've seen that used a lot of times too. And I just think it's so exciting that people are grasping this, this kind of ancient part of our culture. Um, something, you know, many of us feel like we were born with like La Llorona, the story of her in our, in our blood, in our veins, but using it as, as something as something to help us through our most difficult times. And I just love the idea. And maybe the pandemic, you know, brought this all out of us, but that we can all return to a story at the end of the day to, to show us how to have a happy ending. So I, I think there's so much opportunity and possibility with her today. Oh, great. Thanks. Um, Camille and Alina, uh, we are grateful that you joined us on the podcast today. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks to both of you for being here. This was fantastic. Thank you for all having us. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for letting us speak on such a powerful story. Indeed. Uh, we have one more guest up our sleeve to talk about La Llorona songs. But first, maybe we should hear a song about La Llorona. Good idea. This is Mamsel Ruiz, a Mexican singer who lives now in Montreal and sings many of her songs in both French and Spanish. In this version of La Llorona, you'll also hear Zapotec, the Mayan language of the area of Oaxaca where this song comes from. So here's Mamsel. 500 years ago, thank you. Hernán Cortés, the conqueror of, of Spain, arrived to America and to uh, conquer Mexico, uh, he bought a native slave and uh, who, who have many talent to learn languages. Her name was La Malinche. La Malinche was treated like a traitor by her own people. And the legends tells that she already walks on the streets and cries nonstop. And we call her the crier, La Llorona. Quelque part, une parcelle chorona, une parcelle de nos mères. Nous sommes quelque part, une parcelle chorona, une parcelle de nos mères. De l'eau, du vin et du feu, à chorona, nous sommes des crains de la terre. De l'eau, du vent et du feu Ay, Llorona, nous sommes des crains de la terre Ay, de mi Llorona Llorona de azul celeste Ay, de mi Llorona Ay, Llorona de azul celeste 
Aunque la vida me cueste llorona No dejaré de quererte Aunque me cueste la vida llorona No dejaré de quererte Je marche mon chemin depuis longtemps, Yorona. Je marche pour trouver l'amour. Je marche mon chemin depuis longtemps, Yorona. Je marche pour trouver l'amour. Même si le ciel pleure sur moi, Yorona, je ne regarde pas en arrière. Même si le ciel pleure sur moi, Yorona, je ne Hay cosas en esta vida llorona que no se puede comprar. Hay cosas en esta vida llorona que no se puede comprar. El rico con su dinero llorona y el pobre con su esperanza. El rico con su dinero llorona y el pobre con su esperanza. Once again, Mamsel Ruiz with La Llorona. We are continuing to talk about La Llorona, and as we promised, we have another guest. We're very happy to welcome to the podcast Juan Diez, a member of the Sones de Mexico Ensemble. Juan has done a number of programs with us at the American Folklife Center, including a corrido writing workshop a few years back, so you can find him on the Library of Congress website. And he is a trained folklorist with a degree from Indiana University, just like our own John Fenn. Welcome, Juan. Uh, thank you, Steve. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on the podcast with us, Juan. Uh, first of all, we wonder if you heard about the La Llorona legend growing up. And if so, what was the version of the story that you encountered? Well, of course, I uh, I heard about La Llorona uh, growing up. Uh, I grew up in uh, San Luis Potosí in Mexico, and uh, we, we heard as children the legend of La Llorona. Uh, when I heard it, it was basically the the outline was that this was a spirit woman that could be heard weeping uh, either uh, down the streets of uh, Coyoacan in Mexico City uh, at night for some unknown reason at the time. We did, they didn't tell us why she was crying, but they said that you should never, uh, you should fire your curiosity and not go follow her and find out. You know who she is. You know you should hide from her. 
there were I learned about other versions from other parts of Mexico where instead of roaming the streets, she was uh, in the river by the river, and and this was probably more a a story from Oaxaca, where probably where where the story originates. It, it did cross over into popular culture because I remember going to see uh, uh, movies in the in the theater in probably in the late 60s or 70s, uh, where La Llorona would make an appearance. So as a folklorist yourself, you must have seen interpretations of the story as well as having heard it yourself. Does any of the interpretations stand out to you as being particularly interesting? Yes. Well, in uh, it's interesting that in, in the musical interpretations that I've heard, there is no reference to the to the legend itself. The stories, uh, uh, the 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 song talks about uh, a lonely woman, a, an impossible love, a uh, death uh, implied uh, death. But there is no narrative that that tells the story of La Llorona in in the versions that I heard growing up. Now, one of the reasons we thought to ask you on the podcast in particular is that you've recorded a version of a song called La Llorona on one of the Sones de Mexico Ensembles albums. Can you tell us a bit about that particular version and how you brought it into the, the ensemble's repertoire? Oh, yes. Yeah, we recorded that in uh, in our 2007 album, uh, Esta Tierra es Tuya, This Land is Your Land. And uh, it, that was... Uh, that version, uh, of course, is a very well-known in Mexican uh, repertoire, and we wanted to, to represent that. Uh, and we had also been working with that piece in collaboration with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra uh, brass section. We, we did a number of outreach programs in the neighborhoods of Chicago with the, with the CSO brass, and that was one of the pieces we chose to arrange for, for us to collaborate. So uh, La Llorona... Uh, in this version, features uh, a brass quintet and our string ensemble and some percussion, like uh, a marimba, and singing, of course. Uh, great. Well, let's let's hear a clip from the Sones de Mexico's version of La Llorona.
Vienen las flores, llorona las flores del campo santo. No sé que tienen las flores, llorona las flores del campo santo. Que cuando las mueve el viento, llorona parece que están llorando. Que cuando las mueve el viento, llorona parece que Once again, that was La Llorona by the Sones de Mexico Ensemble, and we are here with Juan Diez. And um, so you mentioned the way that, that you arrange the song. What's typical for an arrangement of the La Llorona song? Well, La Llorona music uh, comes from the Istmos of Tehuantepec, Istmo de Tehuantepec in, uh, in southern Mexico, in the state of Oaxaca. So the... There's there uh, music is very diverse in the in that area, so we can hear this song uh, played by brass ensembles, by brass bands. Uh, it's also be, uh, heard uh, with uh, played with marimbas with a marimba ensemble. This is a territory where the marimba is also used, and it's also 
performed by just musicians on guitars doing vocal arrangements uh, with uh, two or three vocal parts accompanied by guitars. So there's a variety of arrangements, but it's uh, typically it's sung either in the uh, uh, time signature of, of three four as a waltz, mm-hmm. uh, in, inter interspersed with a with six eight, uh, more of a sort of a swaying rhythm, and, and uh, sometimes they alternate between six eight and three four. Interesting. Yeah, I've definitely heard it done in a very waltzy way. Yeah, very much as a waltz. So, um, so in an email to me, you suggested that I should consider the thesis that the La Llorona song is not actually about the legend. And you mentioned that before, that it doesn't make direct reference to it. Is that how you interpret it, that it it's, it just happens to use the same word, Llorona? Yes, this is something very recent that I just started considering. I had a conversation uh, uh uh, a couple of weeks ago with one of my bandmates we are currently in a production of the of a play called American Mariachi at the Goodman Theater in Chicago and La Llorona is one of the pieces there so while oh, we great. were waiting to come out uh he mentioned to me that there was an alternate uh explanation of La Llorona that it was it was the same name it was about a weeping woman but it had nothing to do with the legend of La Llorona uh and that made a lot of sense to me because I, I never heard the lyrics tell the story of the song. And that would explain that 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 difference. And then he went on to say, um, and I, I, I wasn't able to contact him before today's interview, but but he does have that alternate uh, explanation uh, of another woman who was weeping for a different reason uh, and, and got to be featured in that song. That's really interesting. And one of the things that I find kind of interesting is that depending on which verses you choose for the song, it can be pretty plausible that it is about the legend and also pretty plausible that it's not. So singers might be deciding what themes they want to emphasize by selecting particular verses. We know that Mamzelle Ruiz, who performed in our concert series this year, presented the song as being not only about the La Llorona legend, but about the version that equates her with La Malinche. So there's a wide range of interpretations possible for the song. Yes, and in doing research for this episode, we even found a couple of San Huasteco songs on the La Llorona theme with completely different lyrics from the Oaxacan one. One did seem to be about the legend, the other not so much. So let's hear a clip of one of them by Trio Aurora. Once again, that was a La Llorona song in Son Huasteco's style, and we are chatting with Juan Diez. Juan actually helped me translate that song for the Folklife Today blog, so look for it there on the blog at blogs.loc.gov folklife. 
Juan, in that song, one of the band members mentions Googling her band and finding contact information online. So <laughs> it's a very modern song. And it just underscores that the La Llorona theme continues to be adapted in legends, songs, novels, poems, movies. You find it everywhere. Um, so what do you think makes it such an enduring part of Latin American culture? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, it's a song. The, the theme of the song is about... Uh, infanticide you know it's a woman that murders her children and lives in penance so i think it's a very uh strong theme especially for children listening to this story uh it is uh, arguably mexico's uh uh best known legend the llorona and it has found its way into popular culture i saw i mentioned earlier a movie about uh la llorona uh fighting a uh uh, Mexican luchador called El Santo, El Santo versus La Llorona. Back in, the, I found it a very scary movie the, back then. And then um, uh, later in the 90s, I think uh, there was an episode in the X Files where La Llorona was featured. So, and, and they gave a, a deeper explanation of why she had murdered her children. I never heard it until the X Files that they explained that her husband had left her and they had a deeper backstory. And, and suddenly, I started hearing people giving that explanation for for the reason she murdered her children. It was more complete, and 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 when I go to schools and I talk to children, they tell me the story of La Llorona, and they're filling in things that I suspect came from from that episode of the X Files. That's great. And later, now now we see the movie. It, it popped up again in the movie Coco, which every child in America has seen, and they're they're also very very aware of that song. Uh, so I think uh, the legend and, and popular culture and songs uh, feed each other and complete each other. So now we see uh, La Llorona, which is a very popular song, popping up in the Huasteco region, uh, probably by musicians who are being asked to play that song. And they, they came up with a version that fits their style and they fill in the details. Now they have an understanding that there may be a relationship with the legend. So they incorporate the legend. Say, what, how come the story, the, the song doesn't tell the, the legend? Well, let's make it so. And we'll make some verses that do. But um, I don't think this originally how, where, where it came from. Uh, so it's, it's constantly evolving. And it just shows uh, the effect of, uh, uh, you know, of putting uh, a song like this through through the mills of, uh, of social life and social networking. Yeah, it just illustrates that, that dynamic relationship between continuity and change, right? That sort of ongoing Definitely. conversation. Well, Juan, thank you so much for guiding us through some of the complex and fascinating backstory of, of La Llorona. Yeah, thanks so much for being with us, Juan. It was great to have you here. Well, you're welcome. We're getting toward the end of our exploration of La Llorona. Once again, there's more at the blog, which is at blogs.loc.gov slash folklife. Yes, over at the blog, we've got a dramatic version of the story by Joe Hayes, a post about La Llorona songs, and the missing link to Spain. We are going to close out with another song, but first, let's say thanks to a few people. Agreed. Thanks to all of our guests, Juan Diaz, Alina Migoni, and Camille Acosta. And thanks to our engineer, John Gold, and all the staff members at the Library of Congress who help us make this podcast possible. 
And let's remember that Dia de los Muertos goes back to some of the older roots of Halloween to celebrate those who have gone before us and to remember them. This version of La Llorona that we'll hear is by Navegaciones Pedro Manuel, and it's rewritten to remember all the women who have been murdered in Mexico. It's called La Llorona Asesinada. So as we listen, let's give a thought to the tragic figure of La Llorona and all the people she weeps for. We will see you next time on Folklife Today. Por ser joven y bonito. 
has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.